Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. In that documentary, man, the whole world is seeing that. I hope you got paid for. It. In fact, I hope I hope you still get. I hope you still getting a check for it because uh, that is eye opening. Uh, it shows the struggle of uh, dreams, and it also shows what can happen. And uh, and uh, I'm telling you, every kid who's uh, thinking about going to the NBA. I'm talking about from 13 years on up, they need to see hoop dreams. They they need to understand that you weren't the first to think, I mean, that you guys were the first to really have it documented. And it had to be a lot tougher back then, you know, to achieve that goal of going, of going to school. And what you guys went through with your families. To show that, you know, that, that hadn't really been shown before. Yeah, they don't understand the culture. Yep. This this inner city basketball is a culture. It's part of our life. There's a lot of people that think they understand it, but they really don't. Hoop Dreams, the podcast, an Unlearning Network production. Ready? <clears throat> Let's get it. Let's get it. Woo, man, I'm excited about this one, AG. You, first of all, you know I always love when when Marquette family come on the show. So yes, I'm, yes. I'm always excited about that one. But the man joining us today is a Wisconsin native. And we're going to talk something about that Wisconsin, too. <laughs> he is an All-American at Marquette University, my university, an ABA first-team all-rookie, an NBA champion. A champion, that's what we say, a champion with the 1980 L.A. Lakers and his play by actor Newton. I want to get his name right. How we say it, A.G.? Mayenge. Mayenge. And the new show, Winning Time, on HBO Max, chronicling the rise of the Showtime Lakers, and he is currently working as part of the broadcast team with the Cleveland Cavaliers because everybody needs to know that he is a Cavalier legend well before LBJ, he is a legend. We're excited to have on the show, Mr. James Jones. Uh, I'm Will Gates. That's my dog. Arthur AG. Thank you, Mr. Jones, for com- coming on the show. I really appreciate it, man. It's a pleasure meeting you. I'm glad you said that because you'd already answered our first question. We was going to ask you, you know, where did you see the movie? But I-, I appreciate you going right into it. So this leads me to this. And first of all, man, I just want to say it's an honor to have you on the show. I mean, you've Thanks. been my hero for the longest. And of course, you know, you were number 22. I wore 22 at Marquette. So, oh, I mean, oh, you know, I love when I go back up there and I look in the locker rooms and I see all the former 22s and I go like, they go Jim right there. <laughs> but um, what we want to talk about, our show is a little bit different. Um, we this is, this is about you and your life, uh, your origin story. So, Describe to us what it was like growing up in the 50s and the 60s. What was that like for you? Painful. Uh, my late brother, I was at his home. My brother died about, uh, about six, seven months ago, my younger brother. And uh, I was with him, and we used to sit and talk. And I, I remember he said, my nickname is Bunny, because when I, they were teaching me how to walk, you know, our parents, they come to me. Mm-hmm. Instead of me taking a step, I was hopping. So they started, <laughs> Look at him. Look at him. He hopping around like a bunny rabbit. So they started calling me Bunny. So he said, Bunny, what, you know, what were you thinking about growing up? I said, I told my brother Marvin, God bless his soul. I said, I was never happy because everything was so new and fresh to me. I didn't have a way of evaluating what happiness really was. My dad was what we affectionately call a street nigga. Mm. Gambling, hoeing, beating up, beating up my mom. Yeah, having her chase her down the street naked. 
teasing her in front of us. Anytime he he, he whipped us, it was never a whipping. It was a beating. Mm. I came home one time at 14, 13, had played on the playground all day. And I, my dad's car was not front. As soon as I hit the door, my mom said, hey, Bunny, go back out. There's some money on the counter. Go get a loaf of bread for your dad's break, uh, lunch tomorrow. And I said, oh, Mama, I just got home. And I heard that cough. My dad died long ago. I said, 43. Smoked two packs of Marlboro a day. I heard that cough. I said, oh, Lord. So what have I done? I'm going to get killed. Prophetic words. My father comes, gets up. He said, who are you talking to like that? I said, uh, Mom. And he said, nigga, I'm going to kill you. And he went, my dad's from the streets. Hung out in Chicago a lot. Did all the dirt he could do. And so he came back one of them big old thick belts with the big brass buckle. He wrapped that buckle around his hand. And it was like throwing punches. And he hit me so hard the first time with the belt, I fell to the ground. He put his foot on my, um, and I fell to my chest. And he put his foot on my back and beat me till he started sweating. And then when he raised his foot up, I tried to run and broke a leg on a tea table trying to get to the stairs to get up to my room. And he grabbed me again and started beating me. And he was sweating just like a man, just like a dog in heat. When he let me go, I ran up the steps. And you know how you sit a broom on that first level of steps? And there was a broom over there in the corner. He took that broom. So when I made that L turn and go back up the next step, he hit me. And if I hadn't put my hand up, he would have hit me across my temple and would have killed me. I had a lump on my arm, on this arm, that stayed there for about 15 years. I probably wow. had broken it and didn't know it. And ran to my room and sat on the side of the bed. And he came on up there. And he looked at me, he's sweating, had his shirt off. He said, if you ever talk to your mother like that again, I'll kill you. You believed him, huh? Yeah, because my dad was from that kind of family. Wow. If you cross that line. And this was, how, how old was you during this time? I was probably 13, 13, wow. almost 14. Yeah, I never will forget that. So. So from that part on, and my dad beat my mom, I was real skinny, ugly. You know, girls didn't like us because we had, see, we weren't like you, Gates. You know, you got good hair. You see, you see, you see me and Arthur, we got that nappy BB roll stuff that's fresh. And the girls weren't looking for nobody like that back then. And plus, we too dark. So they weren't looking at us. You know, they're, they're looking for a light-skinned brother. So uh -huh. so so what happened, I never had a girlfriend. They used to laugh at me on the playground. I used to sneak around by the where the big guy, old guys were playing and watch them. And when they saw me, they would laugh at me and make jokes about me. So I never felt good about myself as a kid. Wow. You know, and that's what Racine, like all 90% of Racine is like Chicago. We all come from Mississippi. Mm -hmm. You know, and what did our parents do? Well, mother and father, they... A mother did domestic domestic for the rich folks, take them long bus rides across town. And our dads worked in the foundries. No factory work. Foundries, pouring mm -hmm. that steel. Killed my dad at 43. So that was what my childhood was like. I used to wear long sleeve shirts in 90 degree weather because I was so embarrassed by how skinny my arms were. I mean, just that. You know, just coming up, man. Hey, Jim, I used to do that, too, because I was so skinny. I used to wear two pair of pants in the summer. You, too. Because <laughs> I was so skinny. My mama used to whoop me for that. That's right. Yeah. Boy, you got to eat. What you doing with? I was like, man, everybody got on shorts outside. I got skinny legs. Right. Like, put on these right. pants and then double them, <laughs> cuff, the, cuff the longer one at the bottom. On, on, right. On, on the bottom. Crazy. How'd you deal with that, though? Well, the way I dealt with it, I was always the funny guy, telling jokes, trying to get somebody to smile at me or laugh. And they weren't laughing with me, they were laughing at me. Mm. You know, and I finally realized that as I got older. Mm. But then all of a sudden, one day I went to the Y. And you know how they have YMCA basketball on Saturdays? Mm -hmm. So I go to the Y and they got bitty basketball, you know, for like nine, 10 year olds. 
mm-hmm. and the gym was packed. And 90% of people there were white. But they were all cheering for this black kid mm. named Steve Gardner. Steve at the time was about five foot four, maybe five three. They lowered the baskets to eight feet. Mm-hmm. And he was killing. He was getting 30, 25, 30 on them. So I wow. said, I want to play that. So the next summer, I came, uh, the next winter, summer, I came down and uh, the guys said, I want to play. And I, all I could do was, was rebound the ball and run the floor. Uh, rebound the ball on either end, run the floor, get on the offense, rebound, give it to someone who could shoot. And that's mm-hmm. how I started to play. But what it did, I started to, to develop confidence in anything. And that's what I was looking for. And so that's how I started how to, you know, how to learn how to play. Wow. That was my introduction. Yeah. What? What did you did you look at any older guys besides Steve Gardner? Did was there any other older guys that you looked at and was like, "Wow, I can do this"? Like that's right. You're exactly right. You see, you guys had 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 guys who came after you, who I thought were great players. But uh, at the time, I used to watch black and white TV and but watch the Boston Celtics mm. and whoever they played because they were on every Sunday. I got a chance to watch Will Chamberlain and all them big guys. I didn't know if I was going to grow because my favorite per- player was Earl Monroe. Mm. You, know, so, you know, that shake. And Spin move. Yeah. You know, so I learned how to get off my hip, all that stuff, two dribbles, what you could do with two dribbles, spinning left, spin right. I learned all that by the time I was 15. I hadn't changed my game since I was 15 years old. It wow. took me all the way to school because wasn't nobody 6'10", 6'11", doing that. Wasn't nobody running with the guards. I could run. You know, back back then, everybody waited to play half court because the centers were slow. So I always had an advantage. I could run. Mm-hmm. And then I always wanted to win. Mm-hmm. Playing was all right, but I saw what happens when you win. When you win in America, no matter what level you're on, and we know that from the streets, you know, when you fight, it ain't good enough just to fight to protect yourself. You have to fight to win the fight. Absolutely. That's why we don't fight with our fists anymore like we used to, because it takes too long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because the guy that gives in is going to lose. Absolutely. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. You know, that's street culture. See, people don't understand it. Well, they say, well man, why do they pick up a gun and kick? Because ain't nobody got time or want you to check their heart. If it go fist to fist, mm-hmm. right? Because at some point during that fight, fist to fist, whoever gives up loses. Absolutely, right. So what do we do? So so what? So what do we do? We shoot your ass. You know, <laughs> you, you know, you know. Right, we shoot you because we don't want to go that far. And and if you lose, you can't live that down. No, I mean, no. Where you, oh, no. Where you gonna go? You know, right, you, right. You, you, you can't show your face to, you no more. Right, you go back to the apartment, <laughs> l- let your sisters heal your wounds. You all right? Yeah. That's right. That's I'm right. I'm all right. They said, buddy, you know Larry Hall beat you. Larry Hall don't come to your waist. I said, well, he tackled me. <laughs> <laughs> so you rebounding and passing the ball at the YMCA. Yeah. How did it progress from there? Well, I was watching Earl Monroe. I was watching all the guys who could handle and do, and do what they do. Chet Walker, that always intrigued me on how they can handle that ball mm-hmm. and then get a shot off. Because my thing is that I developed a, uh, a turnaround jump shot for off of watching Earl Monroe, and I learned how to do a turnaround. And then I watched Will. Will would do a turnaround and skip, remember, and skip back and mm-hmm. shoot a bank shot. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's for y'all time. But 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 anyway, I learned that that was a shot nobody could block because they never knew what I was going to turn and how fast I was going to turn. So mm. I always had a clear look, so I didn't have to hurry it once I made my turn. And I had longer arms, so I could shoot over most guys anyway. And big guys were so slow. Right, they couldn't know, get so, their arms up. Man, I was on the playground every day, all day, shooting, dribbling by myself, because wow. other kids used to laugh at me. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I want to ask you about that, because I went back, man, I started watching all this Jim Jones footage. Oh, Lord. And, and that jump shot was so silky smooth. Yeah. When did you start developing that? Well, I learned a drill. I watched Earl Monroe come down and turn his back. on somebody. This is when he was with Baltimore. 
he used to turn his back and do this and then shake that head. And so you get caught up in the head and all of a sudden he go, and it frees you enough to make that turn and shoot the shot. So I develop a drill, baseline to baseline. I get on the baseline, I would shake one way and shoot it. And then I chase the ball. When it go through the net or close to the rim, I go to the other side, do the same thing. I would do that for hours. Wow. I would stop only to me to drink a soda, get some water, and that's all I shot was a turnaround jump shot. Then I realized that in the half court, you only need two dribbles. Mm. You know. See, LeBron and them, you know, they ball dominant mm-hmm. and hard. They all ball dominant, but, they, but they're not efficient. Right, I mean, right. they'll make assists. But that means they might have passed on five or six opportunities before they get the assist that'll give them credit. You yeah. see where I'm going? It's a little, it's a little different mindset. Yeah. So I wanted to be efficient within the game. So the guy coming down, pass to the wing, he throw it into me, boom, boom, shoot, boom, boom, shoot, so we can keep a rhythm and keep a flow. Mm. You know that type of play. You know now I since the game, I did notice that watching your footage. Every every play, it was it was, boom, it was quick. Couple yeah, passes. Which, yeah. which we going to get to that, man, because some of the guys you played with were phenomenal. I mean, I'm like, you played with top 50 players. Yes, but, I did. Um, we we, we want to kind of transition going into high school too, man, because you and St. Catharines and Racine, but I want I want to stick in Racine for a little bit because Racine, Milwaukee, it, it had its issues racially. Yes, and, and Yeah, and because here's the thing. Jim, we, we, we're a lot closer than you think, man. I used to live in Kenosha, so... Oh. I, I, yes, yes. We were Twin Cities. I keep telling people, Racine and Kenosha, Twin Cities. That's so, right. so I, man, I know all about St. Catharines and all, all that. I mean, it's <laughs> the Nick Van Exels and so forth and so on. Yeah, but, Nick, but, yeah. Yes, Nick the Quick. But the, but the thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, Racine racially was really a hardened type of city. How how did that affect you as, as, a, as a black man? And how did it affect you as a black man playing basketball? Well, when you're young, I never looked, when I was young, I never looked at it in terms of being a black man. Coming up as a kid, only one guy told me, called me a man. Hmm. And I was 11 years old going to a, pass a barbershop. And there was a barber in there named Ardell Bostic. Looked just like Muhammad Ali, about the same size, and used to be a boxer, right? But he got hooked on, on he was spiking, you know, so he got hooked on that, on, on that shit, you know, the heroin. And so he would be cutting hair in the barbershop, and then once in a while he pull that thing out, you know, rag out, you get that sweat off, you know, because he going through one of the minutes, you know, one of the moments. And so he called me in there and he said, Bunny Rabbit because he and my dad were like this. Mm. And he said, hey, Bunny Rabbit. And I came over, he said, hey, man, how you doing? And I said, who's he talking to? Man. I never forget that he's the first person to call me a man. Nobody, I mean, and as far as race was concerned, I had already been conditioned to go certain places, not to do certain things. Mm. always in the presence of people who are not your color to act a certain way. We were already conditioned like that. But mm. the thing that uh, woke me up is one time I was at a club, and that was in the 60s, what they called the free love period, and there was a whole bunch of white girls around there. And when mm-hmm. I came in there, this is when I was at uh, St. Catharines. I'm not St. Catharines, but my first year at Marquette, they was all over me. And I never mm. will forget them sisters looking at me saying, "What? who do you think he is running with the <laughs> white girls? <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm thinking, baby, I'm ugly. Anybody right. can <laughs> look at me. And, the sisters, and for the sisters, fame wasn't enough. But for the white girls, here is somebody. So we can cross the line because he's supposed to be somebody. So when I got to Marquette, so when I got to Marquette, I got caught up in philosophy because I like I like the philosopher. I like to think and mm. try to put pieces together because I'm still trying to figure out who in the hell am I, you know. So mm-hmm. I got caught up in philosophy, which took me into sociology, which took me into all the great authors that we all know about, 
took me in all kind of readings like the Kabbalion, uh, the Quran, God bless him, Circle mm -hmm. 7, all that stuff. I started reading and it gave me an education, not necessarily about, about culture and history and our history, but it gave me an idea about who I was. Because mm -hmm. when you're young and you're going about this world, you don't have a true idea of who God is. So the influences that, that you have are going to come directly from those that are, you associate with. That could be a that could be excuse the term a nigga on the street who's nice yeah. to you all the time always treats you right hey Miss So So what you got you got a dollar hey you got any money here here's here's a dollar mm. you know you don't know who he is right he could he could have been mom's ex boyfriend or something <laughs> hey could be your daddy could be your dad see you don't know but you know but he was nice to you so you never forget that you know you go to church and the minister gives you respect because they respect him. Is reflective on you, so you feel better about yourself. In my yeah. case, my God was my mother and father. Mm. You know, so when I see my dad do something to hurt my mom, I didn't know how to deal with that. Mm. You know, you know, you know, you know. My mom was church going, soft hearted, crying a minute. You know, my dad was stone cold tough, light skinned, six foot four, foundry worker, fight anybody. Never let white folks talk down to him. So that's the only way I knew how to come up. Mm. Then I had the conflict with her, who my mom would always say, oh, dude, don't act like that out here. Jim, Jim, don't say nothing to him. You know, because she was more, I don't, I don't know if you say afraid, but more protective. You know, I don't know if your mothers are like that, but, but my dad was around long enough where my mother didn't have to be father and mother. But if, but if, your, mother, but if your mother was by herself, she had to be both, and that's tough, brother. Yeah, that was that was that was my walk. Mom had to be both, but um, you at St. Catherine's High School uh, after the, you know, what was it like, man? The high school in the in the sixties, because again, you know, for for AJ and I, you know, we weren't even born into the seventies, you know. So, yeah. what 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 was what was that like? Because that was a dynamic change in culture during this time too. You know, was St. Catherine all black school? Was it integrated by this, by this time? No, St. Catherine was all white. The only blacks I knew that went there were light skinned. <laughs> <laughs> you see where I'm going? You see where yeah, I'm going? Yeah, yeah. They yeah. were light skinned. It was in the hood, but it was only in the hood because it didn't start out as the hood. It was up on 12th, 12th and Park or 12th and Racine Street, something like that. 12th and Park, I think. And it was like that meant it was about 12 blocks from where I lived. I could walk to school every day. So I'm at a public school, right? We number one in the state, number two in the state my junior year. But we had a coach who was a redneck, right? And he kept wanting me to go to small state schools. But in the summer, I'm playing against Freddie Brown, Johnny Johnson. I'm playing against the best Milwaukee has offer, you know, Turrentine and all them niggas. You know, them niggas can play. And then we go to Chicago once in a while and play against uh, Sam Puckett and all of them. So we knew what the game was. I knew what the game was about. And so uh, when he tried to minimize me by going to some small state school, I said, I think I can go D1. He said, I don't think so. I said, well, I think I can. So a guy who used to work me out on the playground named Walt Booker, Wally Booker, he said, man, you got to go to St. Catharines. I said, why St. Catharines? Because they got a coach there named John McGuire who used to be at Park High School, they got rid of him because they said he was too close to black kids. And he's the head coach at St. Catharines. And if you go there, Jim, I guarantee you that you'd be a pro if you could play one to him. So March 25th, I asked for my transcripts in the middle of the day at noon. And they didn't give them to me, but they said they could transfer them to the school. They said, where do you think you're going? I said, I'm going to St. Catharines. They laughed at me. I walked out of the school. I walked out of the school. I walked them 10 blocks because, check this out, Park High School was on 12 in the hood, and uh, the other, uh, St. Catharines was on 12th Street in the white neighborhood along the lake. So I walked the 12 blocks, came in there. Sister Veronica told me, what do you want? I said, I want to talk to John McGuire. Wait right here. John McGuire came up and said, can I help you? I said, I want to go to your school. And he didn't say nothing. Because at the time, I was the best player in the state. And uh, he said, you sure? I said, yep. 
He said, come to my office. And that's how I left. That's why I left. Wow. Now, all them buddies and friends I had at St. Catharines, we used to hang out, we grew up together. Did none of them niggas come over and see me play? What? I can't remember more than two or three of them coming from Racine. The couple that went to Marquette, but the rest of them, they never saw me again. They never even tried to come see me play. The only people saw me really play was uh, my mother, because by then my father died my freshman year, lung cancer. Wow. Now, what was the name of the high school before you went to St. Catharines? Racine Park. Park. I went to Park. Racine Park. Oh, you did Park. go to Park. Okay. okay. Yeah, I, I went to Park uh, uh, all the way through, uh, I see, sophomore and junior year. And like I said, junior, junior year was the year I left, March 25th. In fact, show you how simple life, how, how life is a circle. It was in March, middle of March, that I left Marquette to turn pro. All this happening in March which we're going to get to that because even that itself is just still, every time I, I hear the story about it, it blows my mind. But Let's talk about Racine. Let me go back to Racine. Yes, absolutely. Racine is one of those cities that as long as, and most cities I think are probably like that, small town cities, is that as, as long as you go, as long as you do what's expected, life on the surface seems easy. It, it's, it's, it's what we call an imagined reality. Mm. When the reality is, is that you're never going to really own a business unless it's a, a, a corner small drugstore in your neighborhood. I mean, I mean, grocery store in your neighborhood, or if it's a bar, we'll let you have those two things. But I never saw anybody in Racine who was a, an attorney or a professional person. Because mm. most of those kind of people would not come to a town like Racine. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Blacks and whites lived next and door to each other, but most of them were Slavics and German mm. because their parents had worked in the foundries and factories like, like uh, all of us did. You mm. see, we were part of that migration that came from the South, from the South you guys included. Mm. They either went to Chicago or they went to St. Louis. Yeah. You know, or places along the way scattered. They said, well, we, you know, we're on the way to St. Louis, you know, because we know that's where we can, or no, and Kansas City, I'm sorry. And they went to Chicago. In Chicago, what did they end up doing? Opening doors, right? Garbage man, right? Couldn't be a fireman, but you could be a garbage man. You know, you could, you could open quarter. doors, couldn't do no security work, you know, and none, none of that. And the main gig, everybody was making money at was the foundry. Mm. You know, it was hard to get factory jobs back then. Can can you, you know. can you break that down? What what were the foundries? What what is that? Horn steel, malleable, melting iron, and then making it into something. Uh, my dad used to chip and grind when the rough pieces come out of the come out of the hard sand. You actually making the steel beams that that's going that's building buildings. That's that's right. They go in the buildings because steel was steel was the name of this country, and uh, most of the, the best steel was not made in America until after World War II, because all the migrants, Slavic migrants that came over, they had made steel in Europe, and they're the ones that got those jobs initially. They paid them well, you know. They were paying them over a hundred dollars a week which back then was big money. You know, bread was only 20 cents to 10 cents a, a loaf back then. You know, you could buy a pound of butter for uh, 15, 18 cents. You know, yeah. so, so, so to make $100 in a week when your rent was probably only $15, $20 a week, you know, you could live pretty nice. You could have a car. You could have maybe two cars. You could have a boat. You could go to Mississippi once or, once or twice a year and big time. Which is Stacy Adams on? You know what I'm talking about, <laughs> Stacy Adams, right? And your band line. Remember, remember them silk band lines that that your dad and uncles them used to wear. Mm -hmm. some, some band lines and some silk socks. I wish they'd bring the silk socks back. You know, have your hair relaxed <laughs> on the way down to Mississippi. You have it all covered. <laughs> because that was part of our culture, you know, to go back and show them that we made it. Yeah. You know, because people have no idea what it's like to pick cotton. People have no idea what it's like to not have hope every day, but know you still got to go out there and work and provide for your family. That's a different world. It's a different mentality. That's what Racine was like 
without the cotton fields. There was limitations placed on us that we didn't even understand. We just felt it. They call it what institutionalized racism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, yeah. where the institutions don't allow you to participate. You know, they allow you to go to your church. You can build as many churches as you want. Right. Oh, oh, oh yeah, we give you loans for that. Yeah. But they won't get alone to start a business. That, that I didn't know. I didn't know how bad they treated the uh, the Pullman porters back in the day. Oh shoot! Cool. Hi everyone, Jazzy Bell here from Woman in Hip Hop Podcast. And if you're a fan of music, then be sure to check out and subscribe to Woman in Hip Hop Podcast, a show that focuses on the many talents and influences from women within the culture, and is brought to you exclusively by Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip hop, powered by creators. Reem's father was a Pullman. Really? Yeah, man. Yeah, that's right. His father was a Pullman. Hey, them dudes, yeah. A.J. Randolph and them, I mean, he wasn't even a porter, but that dude had the brains. And, and I mean, they, they had the, that dude, George Pullman was the, like the largest uh, African, he had the largest African black workforce in America at the time. Over 20,000 right. blacks with no that's union. That's right, brother. That's right. That's right. Paying him, paying him what he wanted to pay him. They had to pay for their uniforms and everything. It was crazy. Just right, when man. you say that world, like, I don't understand that world. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, because see, you see, we are the result of that resistance. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, those, those, you know, you know, a lot of times people don't understand, you know, I hear young people today talk, man, I wouldn't take that shit from that motherfucker. I wouldn't take that shit, man. You would if you had a family. Mm. You would if you got to feed three or four other people. Yeah. You would. You would understand why I left my family. You'd understand why I left my wife. If you understood the pressure that was on me to provide for them, and I had no other skill set other than to break my back, I couldn't even express myself on how on what I needed and whatever, because the system that minimized me to the point where my value had depreciated. They were better off without me, I thought. Maybe economically, because they think she could apply for welfare. What system would would uh, would encourage you to break up your family so that you could receive food and, and assistance? Nothing but welfare. Absolutely. You know, Dad, when he was be around. Mr. Jones, is also when you say when you say you you had first time been able to call the man was from that guy. And I didn't, I mean, just to even, to know this, like the Pullman Porters, they either called you a boy or called you George. Like they didn't even recognize your name as a human person. Like. No, no, we're going through that now. And, and they dealt with this for years. That's right. And that's what AJ and them Randolph and them fought for. Like you, we we want name tags. Ain't nobody gonna be calling nobody boy or George. Like this was a labor, black labor force did this. That's right. They got tired of it. They got tired of it, brother. And uh, and the same thing is still happening today. It's just in other fields. Sometimes we forget. It's easy for us to forget because of what's being forced upon us and what's influences us daily. You know, you're watching all these sports shows, the ESPNs and all these guys that have made hundreds of millions of dollars and still making more. It gives you a false reality of the suffering of our people. If Cleveland's inner city, if if, if Chicago's inner city is anything like Cleveland's, you know, we're 30, we're 30% below the poverty line in Cleveland. Whoa. Mm. Think about that. 30% we below the poverty line. We 30% lower than the national poverty line, what's considered poverty. We're 30% lower than that. And I know y'all got gang banging and y'all got shooting and killing. It's the same way here, and I'm sure it's the same way in every major city. Yeah. And then when I hear black folks come and talk about how do we change this, you know how we change this. Yeah. Education, jobs, job training, all that stuff that we thought we were going to in the 60s, that all of a sudden they started minimizing again because they saw that it worked and it had a chance to improve the lives of hundreds of millions of people of color. Mm-hmm. Now, now those jobs have been minimized. Wow. You know, it's interesting that you say that, 
even now with your own kids, how, how did you process that? Because you're right, you know, all they did was change a name on the same face though. Yeah. How did, how did you figure that out? And did you, and, and then this is actually a part two to that question. Was, was the goal to always get up out of Racine? Yes, the goal was always to leave Racine because I was never happy there. It was, mm. I was too connected to the struggle to overcome myself. So I knew I had to leave there. Sports gave me that opportunity. Marquette gave me that opportunity. Mm. The opportunity to, to go outside my circumstance and reflect back gave me an opportunity to see how bad I had been hurt and bruised. And then the next question became, as far as education, you know, what are my alternatives? What are my choices? What else can I do? I'm too scared to pick up a gun and kill somebody. I don't like to fight because I don't know if I want to fight all day. And I definitely, I definitely respect my mother and father. Am I considered soft or punk? I mean, I mean, what's going on here? What's me? And then I started to realize to save my only I can save myself. And, and everything big starts small. So that's when the education piece came in. What does education give you? It gives you discipline, the ability to focus, the ability to start a goal and finish. And uh, I remember back in the 60s, I said, man, that, 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 it's, it's not relevant for us. But it had nothing to do with the relevance of the education. It had to do with learning the process to educate oneself. Right. Because if you're educating yourself, what's the next thing you do? You become curious. Absolutely. And you know a process for a pro, and then you understand the process to understand is what? Observation, experiences, mm-hmm. putting pieces together. They call it the creative will. Those three things. That's how human beings learn. We learn that in college by going to college. So the anything that we don't understand, right. you be on Amazon one night, baby, you said, what, what you doing? I don't know, baby. There's this thing they call podcasts. I'm just trying to get a couple of books on Amazon so I can read about it and see if there's something that, that me and Gates might want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, You know what I'm saying? And that's how you learn it. I know you just didn't go to somebody and say, hey, man, what's this about? Because right. y'all are educated. You, you said, man, let me get some books. You know, let me read these articles about this thing. Let me ask some questions. Let me Google up some shit. Mm-hmm. You know, let me see. You know, because then we start understanding the process of knowledge and understanding. Yeah. You know, right? I mean, for you to talk about the Pullman, for you to talk about the Pullman, Come on now. Come on now, brother. And you understand it? And yeah. You also understand this, that it's a reflect. It's a reflection of the society. So it's not just as Pullman. It's in everything that exists in this world and country. And so that gives you a whole different, and not a different, but another perspective about the impact of racism, the impact of what those men went through and how they overcame it. I mean, you 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 were right there as well, man. And I mean, Jim, you're so full of all this knowledge, man. We want we want to <laughs> we want to jump through all of it, but we also want to talk about your basketball dominance because I mean, you you, I just got to say it, Ag, you the man. I mean, you you stone cold killer. But pretty much, what? I, I just got to ask you this, and 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 I don't want this our time to be about racism and race and stuff of that nature. But well, no. you're the number one player in the state. And your coach, before you go to St. Catherine, says you're not a D1 player. That doesn't make any sense to me. Like, no. since when the number one player in the state is not D1 ready? I mean, that just yeah. that boggles my mind. When you heard that, what what were what were you thinking? Well, I understood that he had come from that state system, mm-hmm. so he yeah. had relationships with people. He was willing to sacrifice my abilities to probably satisfy a relationship with someone that he knew at one of those schools, Stevens Point, mm-hmm. old man Bennett. Absolutely. Old man Bennett, not not the young one. Who's who's at, who's at Virginia? Mm-hmm. Now, this this is the, the, their father. The daddy. Totally. You, see, you see where I'm going with this? And, that, and that's where he was at at the time. He was at Stevens Point. So, so, so that was a picture of that, you know. So, so the thing that kept me going was this. My dad's a street guy, right? I've told you the negative side of it. Mm-hmm. But there's always two sides to anything. My dad used to sit there, and me and him would be watching 
Boston Celtics. He's smoking a cigarette, holding himself with his other hand, like they all did back then. It's puffing on a cigarette. All of a sudden, he looks down at me and says, uh, Jim, you can do that. And I, and I said, nope. And before I could get no all the way out, the big foundry hands hit me to the side of my face. You can hear that shit all over the house. He said, he said, God damn it. He said, God damn it, you a chones. You can do it. You can do anything. That's what my dad said. Damn. I love that. And that's what I live by. So when I heard a coach or anybody tell me I couldn't do something, and I remember I remember that slap and the smell of those Marlboro cigarettes at the back of my head. I remember that, man. I remember that said, shoot, I'm a Jones. I can do anything. I'm not looking. I got five kids that all finished college and played D1 sports, right? Mm-hmm. We're the only family mm-hmm. in NCAA history to have six family members play Division One sports. And they'll tell you. You ask them, well, how did you do this and that? And they'll tell you. My dad told us a long time ago, you a Jones. You can do anything. Mm-hmm. And, and where did I get that from? My street dad. My dad and my uncle used to sit on the front porch and I used to listen to them. This is how we learn, right? I'm listening to them. And uh, I remember my dad saying, Sammy, I'm Uncle Sammy. Sammy, I believe I can whoop any man. I just got to figure out a way to do it. I remember him saying that. They were sincere. He said, he said Jay, my dad's J.W. Jay, I feel the same way. I ain't scared of nobody. Me neither. Me neither, bro. I believe I can whoop anybody if uh, if I can figure it out. Figure it out. And, and there right. I was, a young boy. So I didn't all take that as from the physical side of it, but I looked at overcoming other things. You just have to figure it out. Yeah. Build, that was building your confidence already in your mind. Right. Yeah, they, they used to call it humor, how you figure things out. In in the field, you know, you got so many rows you can do. You know, if if I can start an hour earlier, I can get do more rows. That that'll equal so many more bags. That'll mean we can make so much more money. You see where I'm going? You have, you have to try to figure things out because we all have that possibilities, but we don't always want to think. You yeah. know, but we have to think. You know, what we call it is street knowledge, how to deal with someone. And see, this racism is entwined in everything. I know there's other things we want to go to, but we are the result of, 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 of something greater than the oppressive nature of this world. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you a quick story. I don't know if I'm taking all your time. But in the beginning, God gave us three things. The first thing he gave us was flesh so that we could function on the plane of those things manifest. But he also gave us a soul so that we could function on a spiritual plane. But the greatest gift God gave us was our spirit. Let me ask you a question. Doesn't the Bible say that we're made in God's image? Absolutely. And God is what? He's spirit. So therefore, we're spirit. Mm. What's the difference between spirit, flesh, and a soul? A flesh and a soul are finite. When you die, they die. But spirit is infinite. It goes on and on. So the greatest gift God has given us is our spirit. And if it is true that all things that are human come from us, then are we not the leaders of this spirit? There's something to be said for that. Because any time that I feel like I get cramped up or get minimized a little bit. I think about what I am. Mm -hmm. And we are spirit. We have to rise above our circumstances because those are my 90% of those are man created. Mm -hmm. That soon will come to an end. That should encourage you to keep fighting and keep striving. And it has. Look at our people. Look at where we come from. We came over in ships. There were some of us here already, but many of us came over in ships. And they only took the best. Why, 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 why was that? Because they had to last three to four months at sea. So they mm. couldn't take anybody sick. So, we, so what they did, they took Africa's best mm. and put them on ships. We got black folks today that couldn't sit in the bottom of a ship and last three months. 
<laughs> two weeks. Right. So think about what they're doing. Yeah. Think about the strength we had to have. Think about we go to a new land, new language. The systems are different. The loss of our of our culture, which has thousands and thousands of years behind it, all gone. And you have to come to the mindset that you have to overcome that in order to continue to survive. They separate you from the ones that you love, which was your foundation and your motivation for being. Because although your kids are a reflection of you, that's what this is. That's why there's no, there's nothing wrong with talking about race. There's nothing wrong with race theory. There's nothing wrong with telling people where they came from, because it's not only going to improve us, but it'll improve the whole world Absolutely. and everyone that's in it. That's what this is about. But what do you think is the big pushback on that? Because right now, on every circle, they they don't want critical race theory out there they don't want and 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 i just i'm just gonna put it out there they don't they don't want these truths to be known that are already known it's we're not telling something that we don't already know well what you're saying is what they're saying is this we don't want the ones that don't know to know because the advantage in our society is to know mm-hmm. think think about that the more you know, the better you live. It ain't going to make you a racist. It ain't going to make you a terrorist. It ain't going to make you a militant. That's what they're afraid of. And those that don't want it to happen will tell you. It won't make you any of those things. Because knowledge itself is the driving force behind everything that we're striving to be and everything that we hope to be. Knowledge, wisdom. And understanding. Let me tell you another story. First Kings chapter 3, verses 1 to 25. My favorite verses in the Bible. Let me ask you. King, King Solomon, who was his father? David. Mm-hmm. David was the most cherished disciple of, of Jesus, of God. Mm-hmm. Well, he was, he was after Jesus, but uh, of God because of his loyalty and his discipline to his beliefs. Mm. One day when Solomon was asleep, God came to him and asked him and told him, because you've been a law servant to me as like your father, what can I give you? Mm -hmm. I'll give you anything you want. But because he was in that mindset of his father, of humility and understanding and wisdom, you know what he asked for? All I ask God is to give me the wisdom and the knowledge and understanding to run these great people of Israel. So God gives him knowledge. So who does Solomon become? The the wisest man of that known world. Absolutely. So God was so pleased with him. What did God give him? Gold, all the other physical things that he didn't ask for, but was deserving of, right? And so because you were such a lost everything else. So what's the story? There's a lot of stories in there, but the one story I found out is this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is not based on necessarily religion. It's based on knowledge and understanding and knowing things Mm. to improve one's self. You you see where I'm going with this? And so when we see all these great athletes, they worth millions. Some are even going to be billionaires. And when you talk to them, they're still bitter and hateful, and they're still breaking laws and doing all those things. Then you then you sit back. Man, why are you acting so sudden? He got, he got everything. Well, he doesn't have everything, you know, and that's what's messing with him. Why? Because everything that we think he has, has an end, has a beginning and an end. Yeah. The only thing that will satisfy us because we're spirit is anything that connected to spirituality. Absolutely. Wow. You see where I'm going with this. Now, there's a lot of other stories within that story. Right? Because at some point, what did Solomon do? He became the thing that God hated most. A womanizer, mm-hmm. all them wives. Yes, you know what I mean? Yes, he did. So, so, yeah, there's another side. Remember the two women that came and one had a baby, another one stole a baby in the sleep? Mm-hmm. Show him how wisdom. wise he is. Mm-hmm. He said, is that your baby? No, it's Miss Mine. I da, da, da. He said, well, since we can't decide, let's kill the baby. 
And then the one, the mother who was the baby's mother stood up and said, no, don't kill her. Let her have it. Then Solomon grabbed his chin and said, you must be the mother then. Because only a mother would sacrifice her greatest love, anything that she brings to life. So that so that that thing could, so that that baby could not be killed. Mm. The other woman was willing to do that, mm-hmm. but she mm-hmm. said, "No, no, don't kill the baby. Let her have it." Well, Jim, you know you talking my language, so <laughs> so you know, hey, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Number one recruit. How did you start getting recruited by West schools? And if it wasn't Marquette, who'd you would have went to? Well. I started getting recruited in my junior year. And they found out I was going to St. Catharines. So every at every Friday, this is during the winter, this is during the summer, just, just well in the spring, I'd stop down the coaches off be all these letters. So after a while, we had like 300 letters, right? I mean, that being almost every school in the country was, was thinking that Jim Jones, but the way it was spelled Catholic school, they probably thought I was white. Because mm. a lot of blacks told me that, so, oh, oh, we thought you was, we thought you was a white boy. We ain't heard no brother spell a name like that and come out of a, a Catholic school. I said, yeah, okay, but but anyway, uh, I was getting all these letters, so I decided to go check out a few places, and one was uh, Michigan State, and I took a chance, went to Michigan State. They remember they had a player named Ralph Simpson, mm-hmm. about six foot five, played like Oscar. Remember mm-hmm. this whole game like Oscar Roberts. And uh, me and Ralph, he was my host. And, man, we went around. I had my first filet mignon, you know. I had three of them on a the plate, bread, potatoes, ketchup, salt. I ate all three of them. He said, man, you want to take something back to the room? I said, yeah, man. Took him back to the room. First time I'd been on a flight. First time I'd had filet mignon, the big old food. And wow. the first time I've ever been away, from, really away from home by myself. Mm. And so uh, I stayed there three days. When I got back, I said I wanted to go to Michigan State. I said, well, you haven't visited other schools. I said, no, nah, I don't need to visit no more. I'll go to Michigan State. Uh, the coach, two months later, dies playing racquetball. Mm. What? And so, yeah, he's playing racquetball, but he was a smoker. He was a smoker. Because when he came to visit me in, in Racine, he was he was smoking chain smoking then, right? And so he died. And so I asked him to let me out of this agreement. Because, you know, at that time, you know, you only go to school because of the coach, you know. And so uh, I had a chance uh, to get out. And then Marquette came in the picture. Hey, look, we got a banquet coming up. Why don't you come? I came to the banquet. And I was impressed by Al McGuire and uh, George Thompson. GT. Yeah, here's a jock that's speaking well, New York slick. You know how you still at New York, they turn the hair to the side so you can see yeah. a little BB roll wave. Yep, yep, yep. You know, talk like this, you know, Marquette, basketball, you know. And I'm sitting back with Mississippi Cool. I'm just. Yeah. And so they came. But also, who came with him was the owner of the Bucks, former mm-hmm. owner, Herb Cole. Herb Cole. Remember cold food stores? Absolutely. Okay, he and Al were tied at the hip, right? So they both come over. Most people don't know this, who later became Senator Cole. He was a redhead, bright red hair. That's that's what I know, but, you know, they turned white. So the senator came along with Al. They come to the front door. You know how the screen be torn. Mm -hmm. They peek at the screen, see my mom back there ironing my dad in the living room, smoking a cigarette. Holding his nuts, you know, on a on a on a big old couch that was held up by cinder blocks. You, you know, you know, we do that. You know, yeah. we do. We got to, you know. So he comes in, he steps into the room, the living room, and you know how you tear that vinyl that vinyl off that looked like the side of the the, the East Coast, and then if you don't know that they're wood splinters, and the wood is splintered up, and he's standing there. Looking around with his double knit suit on, talking about a nice pad, Jay. I should have known some shit was up there. <laughs> talking in, I should have known something was up there. You know, my mom, she in the back room holding them out, ironing, 
I'm standing over there like this while Senator Cole sits down and my dad sit down and my mom is over here. In fact, my dad never stood up. Al came over there and shook his hand while my dad was sitting. And they talked about half an hour. But the thing I remember from that talk, Al McGuire told my dad, if Jimmy does what I tell him, he'll be a pro and he'll get you out of this. Mm. Pops already knew it. Cause he told you sitting on sitting on the sitting on the floor watching uh he told you, that's boy, right. you could do that. That's right. Remember that? Remember that? Yeah. So when when Al McGuire came to him and said that, he was like, shit. That's right. That's right. That's right. Two plus two was gonna equal four. Damn. Or more. Right. So but what I didn't know, my dad had cancer. Mm. He had lung cancer. He had grown up in Mississippi with uh, asthma. But he was a devout smoker of Marlboro and Camels, two packs a day. So you knew that you know what was gonna happen. Plus, you inhaling them fumes in the foundry. Mm-hmm. Knocked him out. He was forty-three years old, brother. Wow, my dad, young man. I was a freshman when we came down mm. to, to the to the funeral. My mom didn't have nothing. We didn't have nothing. Yeah. So I had to be a pro. You know, all of us have been under that pressure. Think about your aspirations, right? Same thing. Yeah. Both of y'all, right? Yeah. Come on, think about the guys playing now. You were just as good as those kids. Yeah. So what was the difference? Maybe an opportunity or the way you saw the opportunity or the way it was presented to you or just the times in general didn't offer the opportunity these kids had. We didn't know nothing about no AAU. What? All we knew about was what? CYO. <laughs> yeah. Play in the playground. The and play on that asphalt. Oh, Lord. That's it. Take it off it. from the free throw line on asphalt. <laughs> That's it. That's it. And and don't forget this one. No blood, no foul. Oh, Lord. You, you got cold, <laughs> man. Oh, you. The only thing that would start a fight, remember that, was to be clothesline. That's right. That's right. That's the that only thing. Everything else, we all had scars and scrapes and, you know, swiping. Because, you know, wasn't nobody checking nobody. We were trying, though. Yeah. You know, but we were swiping and, damn, nigga, cut me all up today. Right, Man, right, right. Fingernails. right. Hey, cut your fingernails. And be out there all day. <laughs> yeah, all day, brother. But with a knee soda. I remember one time I'm on the playground. It's game point. It took us two fights at 30 minutes to finish <laughs> that game. <laughs> yeah. Two fights and 30 minutes to finish that game. That's right. Oh, That's Lord. right. You know, nobody give guess, it nothing. No, I guess what we're talking about is culture. Mm. You know, this was a way to get away from it. This was a way to feel good about yourself because you're doing it with others, that you're not out here alone. Or that I overcame them niggas. You know, you, you know how the older guys want to play y'all sometimes? And then that first time you beat them, ooh, yeah. Lord. Ooh, yeah. They want to fight. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. You have to get your ball and run home. Remember that? Because <laughs> yeah. they say, no, 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 nigga, this, this ain't over. <laughs> and, then, and, then they, and then they didn't want you to play no more. You couldn't even come back the next no, day. <laughs> no, man. They don't want to play y'all. That's right. But then, but then what happened? Hey, uh, you want to play with us today? And then you knew you made it. That's a, matter of fact, that was going to be my question for you. What was that moment that you knew you arrived as a player? Well, it was two things. Uh, I have been playing with Johnny Johnson, who I still think is the greatest ball player to ever come out of uh, Wisconsin. Six foot six, handled like a guard, first round pick of the Cavaliers. When they, they had the first franchise, played at uh, Mesmer High School, right off the highway, mm-hmm. right off the Interbell. And I never will forget that. In fact, the coach who won the first pick in the NBA draft yesterday, mm-hmm. that's uh, he went to Mesmer. He's from Milwaukee. Oh, okay. Yeah. From the Orlando young- Magic. Yeah. And there he was. You know, he couldn't even talk. I said, nigga, come on, at least say something more wild. <laughs> he was a stun. He was a stun. He couldn't believe he got it. Just, well, you know. 
Yeah, but he's a good, I can't think of his name. But but anyway, uh, this this is all a circle. You know, this is how Pilot happens. But the, the the reason I knew I could play, because I've been playing against them. Check this out. Five foot six from Milwaukee, Polish kid, John Rinka. Look it up, just like it sounds, John Rinka. John Rinka led the country in scoring for three straight years, went to a small school, averaged 30-something, almost 40 points a game for three years from Milwaukee, right? So I come in the gym. Here I am, you know, uh, eighth, ninth grader. And uh, I'm playing. I see George Thompson, all these other guys playing. George was a freshman there. And there's this little white boy out there, five foot six, built like a bodybuilder. He was the first one, Freddie, and then pick. I take, I'll take Rink. You take so and so. So who's that? Yeah, that's the kid for racing. Okay, yeah, add him on. Shoot, John Rinka. You know, you played at twenty. John Rinka had fifteen points. Had fifteen of the twenty points. He was pulling up on niggas from the original three point line <laughs> and running down the floor while it was still in the air. That's how deep his game. And with, and if you try to challenge him, he do that little quick dribble. Da -da -da. Da -da -da. Oh, you go. You ain't going for it. Go past you. Then pull up. John Rinka. Five six. Five, six. Check it out now. From Milwaukee. So I'm playing with them. So I had an idea I could play on that level, right? And then, cause I, then Johnny and Freddie, they played out of Iowa. And so I remember they went to the league. So I had an idea I could play. But the greatest thing is that when I was in high school, uh, they got me into a camp called Ed McCauley. Ed McCauley Basketball Camp up in Prairie du Chien. Mm. I'm the only brother there, right? But I'm, but I'm not a player. I'm a coach. So I got paid like $150 for a week. So I'm drilling the kids, showing them what they got to do. We get Terry Dissinger from Purdue, leading, leading score in the Big Ten for two straight years, over 28, 30 points a game. He, he does a demonstration. I'm watching him. Damn, he kind of slow. Then the kids start hollering, play Jones. Play Mr. Jones. Play Mr. Jones. Play Mr. Jones. So they, so they said, yeah, so the camp director, go out there and play Terry. So I go out there. He scores two quick baskets, but I look at what he's doing. I said, oh, shoot, he ain't got no handle. That's all he can do is shoot. I said, let me get up on him. So I got up on him. He did that little stuff. I blocked the next three shots he took, right? And every time I got it, I said, oh, he's slow. I, oh, and you too little? I think Terry's about six seven, six eight. So I would just shoot it in his face. <laughs> you know, you know, you know. That's that's the biggest thing that you can do. That's the worst thing you can do to a guy: shooting his face every time. Right. And so after I played him later in the week, we get Oscar Robertson. Oscar Robertson comes to the camp. He's showing kids how to shoot. He's shooting while he talks. Well, you know, basketball is a heck of a game. He's shooting about 25 shots from about 15 feet on out. Ain't missed one yet. He talking. You know, it takes a lot of hard. Play Mr. Jones. Play Jim Jones. Play Mr. Jones. So Oscar says, who is this? Jim Jones. He said, come on out here. He said, hey, I'll give you the ball first. So he gave me the ball first. If you make it, you keep it, okay? I said, okay, so I make two jumpers on Oscar. You know, he's 6'6". Six, six. Mm -hmm. But I shoot. So I make two on him. I miss the third one. He gets the ball. He, two, 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 two dribbles. You know how that elbow come up? Mm -hmm. And I block this shot. Kids go crazy. But Oscar's from our culture. Don't nobody block my mom. That's right. That's right. Next time down, he goes the same spot. He set me up. Same way. He brings it up. I'm getting into the rhythm of it. I lean forward. He brings that elbow up. Boom! Mm. Bust all this. Mm. He said, and this is what he said, you all right? You want to keep playing? I, thought, I said, no, let's keep playing. So what happened then? I never stuck my chin out there. So he could also, he always had a spot where he could make that shot. He made about eight in a row, game over. He hugged me and said, you all right? He said, I hope you learned something. I said, I, I, I said, yeah, I did the hard way. We both started laughing. <laughs> mm. You see what I'm saying? Then I knew I could play. 
And that was some for real shit. Like he wasn't y'all wasn't just joking around for no, the kids. No, man. No, because I like to win. I'm about winning. He was about winning. Right. There's the individual battle. First of all, there's the battle with self. Yep. The, and then there's a battle against an opposition. And then there's a battle based upon what the game demands. Mm. You, you win or you lose. And we both were playing to win. That's the part that nobody's conveying in their commentary. You know, you got to figure it out on yourself when you listen to these guys talk. But this game is a cultural thing. Mm. We, we're looking to win on something, at something, on some level. You know, so we choose sports. That's why we run track. That's why we play baseball. I'm the gold of my era. I've been a trending topic. I'm as fly as a feather. My pocket's macroscopic. See, with time, I get better. I'm always in the action, kid. No, I got it locked from Chicago where the toughest live. Concrete jungle, earn my stripes on the pavement there. You make it here, then you can make it anywhere. No comparison. Your game is embarrassing. No one can touch me, I'm all for going there again. Yeah, I think I'm ballin' like I'm Will Gates. I'm hoop dreamin', trying to fight against a sealed fate. More faith, think I'm ballin' like I'm Martha A.G. I'm box office in one day, they gon' have to pay me. Yeah, I think I'm ballin' like I'm Will Gates. I'm hoop dreamin', trying to fight against a sealed fate. More faith, think I'm ballin' like I'm Martha A.G. I'm box office in one day, they gon' have to pay me. Hoop Dreams, the podcast, an Unlearning Network production. Written and produced by Arthur Ag, Will Gates, Matt Hoffer, with audio engineering from Matt Savage. For more episodes, check us out at www.unlearningnetwork.com. Gotta be a dog to survive in this cold weather. Ice in my veins, no need for a warm sweater. I'm coming forward, all best believe I won't let up, yeah. Hey, I think I'm balling like I'm Will Gates. I'm hoop dreaming, trying to fight against a sealed fate. More faith, think I'm ballin' like I'm Martha A.G. I'm box office in one day, they gon' have to pay me. Yeah, I think I'm ballin' like I'm Will Gates. I'm hoop dreamin', tryna fight against a sealed fate. More faith, think I'm ballin' like I'm Martha A.G. I'm box office in one day, they gon' have to pay me.